0: There's something new on Airs L.A. every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. February 26, on this date in history in the year 1919, two national parks are preserved ten years apart. On this day in history, two national parks were established in the United States 10 years apart, the Grand Canyon in 1919 and the Grand Tetons in 1929. Located in northwestern Arizona, the Grand Canyon is the product of millions of years of excavation by the mighty Colorado River. The chasm is exceptionally deep, dropping more than a mile into the earth and is 15 miles across at its widest point. The canyon is home to more than 1500 plant species and over 500 animal species, many of them endangered or unique to the area, and its steep, multicolored walls tell the story of 2 billion years of Earth's history. In 1540, members of an expedition sent by the Spanish explorer Coronado became the first Europeans to discover the canyon, though because of its remoteness to the area was not further explored until 300 years later. American geologist John Wesley Powell, who popularized the term Grand Canyon in the 1870s, became the first person to journey the entire length of the gorge in 1869. The harrowing voyage was made in four rowboats. In January 1908, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt designated more than 800,000 acres of the Grand Canyon a national monument it was designated a national park under President Woodrow Wilson on February 26, 1919. Ten years later to the day, President Calvin Coolidge signed into law a bill passed by both houses of the U.S. Congress establishing the Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. February 27. On this date in history, in the year 1922, the Supreme Court defends women's voting rights. In Washington, D.C., The Nineteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, providing for female suffrage, is unanimously declared constitutional by the eight members of the U.S. Supreme Court. The Nineteenth Amendment, which stated that the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex, was the product of over seven decades of meetings, petitions, and protests by women suffragists and their supporters. In 1916, the Democratic and Republican parties endorsed female enfranchisement and, on June 4, 1919, the 19th Amendment was passed by Congress and sent to the states for ratification. On August 18, 1920, Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the amendment, achieving the required three-fourths majority of state ratification. And on August 26, the 19th Amendment officially took effect. February 28. On this date in art history in the year 1982, the Getty Museum is endowed. On February 28, 1982, the J. Paul Getty Museum becomes the most richly endowed museum on earth when it receives a $1.2 billion bequest left to it by the late J. Paul Getty. The American oil billionaire died in 1976 but legal wrangling over his fortune by his children and ex-wives kept his will in probate until 1982. During those six years, what was originally a $700 million bequest to the museum nearly doubled. By 2000, the endowment was worth $5 billion even after the trust spent nearly $1 billion in the 1990s on a construction of a massive museum and arts education complex in Los Angeles. Gene Paul Getty, born in Minneapolis in 1892, built his fortune through the accumulation of oil companies. He began collecting artworks in the 1930s preferring Renaissance and Baroque paintings and French furniture and displaying them in his ranch house in Malibu, California. In 1954, he formally opened the J. Paul Getty Museum, which occupied a specially built wing of his Malibu home. Later, his collection outgrew the ranch, so Getty built a new museum in Malibu. The new Getty Museum was modeled after Villa di Papiri, a Roman villa uncovered in the town of Herculaneum, which was built by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. It was completed in 1974, but Getty, who lived mostly in England and after World War II died before he could return to Malibu to see it in person. His coffin was sent back to California, and he was buried near his museum on a bluff overlooking the Pacific Ocean. In leaving a third of his fortune to the J. Paul Getty Museum, his only stipulation was that the fortune be used for the diffusion of artistic and general knowledge. This gave the museum extraordinary freedom, an unusual legacy from a man who in his life had sought absolute control over his affairs. The law's governing trusts, however, indicate that the museum must spend 4.25% of its endowment three out of the four years in order to retain its tax-exempt status. In the first year after its endowment, that figure equaled $54 billion. Today, the amount the museum must spend three out of the four years is more than $200 million. The J. Paul Getty Museum's greatest challenge, therefore, is finding enough art and culture to buy, but not too much that other museums accuse the Getty of hoarding the world's masterpieces. The museum spent a good chunk of its endowment in the construction of the Getty Center, a six-building complex set on a hilltop in the Brentwood section of Los Angeles. The $1 billion complex opened in December 1997. 14 years in the making, the Getty Center includes a large museum, a research institute, and library, an art conservation institute, a digital information institute, an arts education institute, a museum management school, and a grant program center. The buildings were designated in a modernist style by American architect Richard Meyer. February 29. On this date in history, in the year 1980, Buddy Holly's glasses, lost since his death in 1959, are found in Mason City, Iowa. When the Beechcraft Bonanza carrying Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper crashed outside of Clear Lake, Iowa in the early morning hours of February 3, 1959, it struck the ground with such force that all three passengers were killed instantly, and the plane's wreckage was strewn across nearly 300 yards of snow-covered cornfields. The death certificate issued by the Cerro Gordo County Coroner noted the clothing Holly was wearing, the presence of a leather suitcase near his body, and the following personal effects. Cash, $193. Less, $11.65 in coroner's fees, equaling $181.35, two cufflinks, silver, half-inch, balls having jeweled band, top portion of a ballpoint pen. Notably missing from the list were Holly's signature eyeglasses, the most distinctive visual legacy of a man who influenced the sound and style of rock and roll immeasurably. Those famous glasses were presumed lost forever until the announcement on February 29, 1980 that they had resurfaced in Mason City, Iowa. The glasses in question had the appearance of something government issued, but they were in fact carefully chosen as part of Holly's image, not by Holly himself, but by his Lubbock, Texas optometrist, Dr. J. Davis Armistead. Buddy was trying to wear the least conspicuous frames he could find, wrote Dr. Armistead, nearly 40 years after writing Holly's last prescription. Personally, I was not happy with the frame styles we had been using. I did not think they contributed anything to a distinct personality that a performer needs. It was while on vacation in Mexico City that Armistead found exactly the frames that he had felt Holly needed he brought back two pair of the heavy plastic Fiosa frames. Those heavy black frames achieve exactly what we wanted. They became a distinct part of him. In fact, they became a part of the basic iconography and spirit of rock and roll. Before Buddy Holly, it would have been impossible to imagine a skinny, knock-kneed kid in an Ivy League suit and thick heavy glasses being considered cool. After Buddy Holly... The look and attitude that would later be called geek chic became a completely accepted alternative style for an aspiring rock star to embrace. So how did the famous glasses reemerge? In the violence of the crash back in February 1959, they were thrown clear of the other wreckage and buried in snow. They were found, along with the Big Bopper's Watch, that same spring, when the melting snow made them visible again. Though they were handed in immediately to the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's Office, they sat filed away for the next twenty-one years in a sealed manila envelope marked Received April 7, 1959. That envelope was opened by Sheriff Jerry Allen on this day in 1980, the glasses were eventually returned to Holly's widow. March 1. On this date in Presidential history in the year 1961, President Kennedy establishes the Peace Corps. President John F. Kennedy issues Executive Order No. 10924 establishing the Peace Corps as a new agency within the Department of State. The same day, He sent a message to Congress asking for permanent funding for the agency, which would send trained American men and women to foreign nations to assist in development efforts. The Peace Corps captured the imagination of the U.S. public, and during the week after its creation, thousands of letters poured into Washington from young Americans hoping to volunteer. The immediate precursor of the Peace Corps, the Point Four Youth Corps, was proposed by Representative Harry Roos of Wisconsin in the late 1950s. Senator Kennedy learned of the Ruse proposal during the 1960 presidential campaign and, sensing growing public enthusiasm for the idea, decided to add it to his platform. In early October 1960, he sent a message to the young Democrats that called for the establishment of a youth peace corps and, on October 14, He first publicly spoke of the Peace Corps idea at an early morning speech at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. The night before, he had engaged Vice President Richard Nixon in the third presidential debate and was surprised to find an estimated 10,000 students waiting up to hear him speak when he arrived at the university at 2 a.m. The assembled students heard the future president issue a challenge. How many of them, he asked, would be willing to serve their country, and the cause of freedom by living and working in the developing world for years at a time. The Peace Corps proposal gained momentum in the final days of Kennedy's campaign, and on November 8, he was narrowly elected the 35th President of the United States. On January 20, 1961, in his famous inaugural address, he promised aid to the poor of the world. To those peoples in the huts and villages of half the globe struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, he said, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves for whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. He also appealed to Americans to ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. After March 1, Thousands of young Americans answered the call to duty by volunteering for the Peace Corps. The agency, which was headed by Kennedy's brother-in-law, R. Sergeant Shriver, eventually chose some 750 volunteers to serve 13 nations in 1961. In August, Kennedy hosted a White House ceremony to honor some of the first Peace Corps volunteers the 51 Americans who later landed in Accra, Ghana, for two years of service immediately made a favorable impression on their hosts when they gathered on the airport tarmac to sing the Ghanaian national anthem in Twai, the local language. On September 22, 1961, Kennedy signed congressional legislation creating a permanent peace corps that would promote world peace and friendship through three goals, one, to help the peoples of interested countries in meeting their need for trained men and women, two, to help promote a better understanding of Americans on the part of the people served, and three, to help promote a better understanding of other peoples on the part of Americans. By the end of 1963, 7,000 volunteers were in the field, serving in 44 countries. In 1966, Peace Corps enrollment peaked with more than 15,000 volunteers in 52 countries. Budget cuts later reduced the number of Peace Corps volunteers, but today, more than 7,000 Peace Corps volunteers are serving in over 60 countries. Since 1961, more than 240,000 Americans have joined the Peace Corps, serving in 142 nations. March 2 On this date in film history in the year 1978, grave robbers steal Charlie Chaplin's body. Grave robbers steal Charlie Chaplin's body. In one of history's most famous cases of body snatching, two men steal the corpse of the revered film actor Sir Charles Chaplin from a cemetery in the Swiss village located in the hills above Lake Geneva near Lausanne, Switzerland, on March 1, 1978 a comic actor who was perhaps the most famous for his alter ego, The Little Tramp. Chaplin was also a respected filmmaker whose career spanned Hollywood's silent film era and the momentous transition to talkies in the late 1920s. Chaplin died on Christmas Day in 1977 at the age of 88. Two months later, his body was stolen from the Swiss Cemetery, sparking a police investigation and a hunt for the culprits. After Chaplin's widow, Ona, received a ransom demand of some $600,000, police began monitoring her phone and watching 200 phone kiosks in the region. Ona had refused to pay the ransom, saying that her husband would have thought the demand ridiculous. The callers later made threats against her two youngest children. Ona Chaplin was Charlie's fourth wife, after Mildred Harris, Lita Gray, and Paulette Goddard and the daughter of the playwright Eugene O'Neill. She and Chaplin were married in 1943, when she was 18 and he was 54. They had eight children together. The family had settled in Switzerland in 1952 after the controversial Chaplin, whom his enemies accused of being a communist sympathizer, learned he would be denied a re-entry visa to the United States en route to the London premiere of his film Limelight. After a five-week investigation, police arrested two auto mechanics, Roman Wardas of Poland and Gastancho Ganev of Bulgaria, who on May 17 led them to Chaplin's body, which they had buried in a cornfield about one mile from the Chaplin family's home in Corsier. That December, Wardas and Ganev were convicted of grave robbing and attempted extortion political refugees from Eastern Europe, Wardas and Ganev, apparently stole Chaplin's body in an attempt to solve their financial difficulties. Wardas, identified as the mastermind of the plot, was sentenced to four and a half years of hard labor. As he told it, he was inspired by a similar crime that he had read about in an Italian newspaper. Ganev was given an 18-month suspended sentence as he was believed to have limited responsibility for the crime. As for Chaplin, his family reburied his body in a concrete grave to prevent future theft attempts. March 3rd. On this date in history, in the year 1887, Helen Keller meets Anne Sullivan, her teacher and miracle worker. On March 3rd, 1887, Anne Sullivan begins teaching six-year-old Helen Keller who lost her sight and hearing after a severe illness at the age of 19 months. Under Sullivan's tutelage, including her pioneer, touch-teaching techniques, Keller flourished, eventually graduating from college and becoming an international lecturer and activist. Sullivan, later dubbed the Miracle Worker, remained Keller's interpreter and constant companion until the older woman's death in 1936. Sullivan, born in Massachusetts in 1866, had first-hand experience with being handicapped. As a child, an infection impaired her vision. She then attended the Perkins Institution for the Blind, where she learned the manual alphabet in order to communicate with a classmate who was deaf and blind. Eventually, Sullivan had several operations that improved her weakened eyesight. Helen Adams Keller was born on June 27, 1880, To Arthur Keller, a former Confederate Army officer and newspaper publisher, and his wife Kate of Tuscumbia, Alabama. As a baby, a brief illness, possibly scarlet fever or a form of bacterial meningitis, left Helen unable to see, hear, or speak. She was considered a bright but spoiled and strong willed child. Her parents eventually sought the advice of Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, and an authority on the deaf. He suggested the Kellers contact the Perkins Institution, which in turn recommended Ann Sullivan as a teacher. Sullivan, aged twenty, arrived at Ivy Green, the Keller family estate, in 1887 and began working to socialize her wild, stubborn student and teach her by spelling out words in Keller's hands. Initially, the finger spelling meant nothing to Keller. However, a breakthrough occurred one day when Sullivan held one of Keller's hands underwater from a pump and spelled out W-A-T-E-R in Keller's palm. Keller went on to learn how to read, write, and speak. With Sullivan's assistance, Keller attended Radcliffe College and graduated with honors in 1904. Helen Keller became a public speaker and author. Her first book, The Story of My Life, was published in 1902. She was also a fundraiser for the American Foundation for the Blind and an advocate for racial and sexual equality as well as socialism. From 1920 to 1924, Sullivan and Keller even formed a vaudeville act to educate the public and earn money. Helen Keller died on June 1, 1968, at her home in Easton, Connecticut, at age 87, leaving her mark on the world by helping to alter perceptions about the disabled. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for February 26th through March 3rd. If you'd like to learn more about Airs including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.